This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, election season in Latin America and presidential campaigns are in full swing in Colombia and Panama. We'll review the political field in both countries. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with the results of presidential races in Central America and the rest of our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. This past weekend, voters in Costa Rica and El Salvador slimmed down their fields of presidential candidates. Both countries will hold runoff elections later in the spring. In El Salvador, Vice President Salvador Sanchez Seren took 49% of the vote, just about 1% short of winning the election outright in the first round. Sanchez is the leader of the FMLN and was a guerrilla commander in that country's civil war. He will face the mayor of San Salvador, Norman Quijano of the Arena Party, in a runoff. Hector Silva, a leading Salvadoran journalist with American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, observed the elections in his home country. Via Skype from San Salvador, he told us political campaign planners for ARENA have all but conceded Sanchez will win in the next round. I've even talked to some ARENA representatives saying that, listen, now we know that we're going to lose and we need to focus on the upcoming election, uh, which is not the second around but the 2015 legislative and municipal elections and make sure that we're going to have a very strong uh, fraction in Congress in 2015 uh, and, and because that's going to be our only mean of power, really. In Costa Rica, political newcomer Luis Guillermo Solis of the left-leaning Citizens Action Party took first place. His party takes a strong anti-corruption stance finishing just a point behind the mayor of San Jose, Johnny Araya of the ruling center-left party, the National Liberation Party, Solis provided an electoral surprise as Araya has been the front-runner in polls for the entire campaign. Guatemala's highest court is cutting Attorney General Claudia Pazipaz's term short. She is the country's crusading human rights attorney, and has only four months to go in her four-year term. She filed an appeal with the court to overturn its decision, but it is the same court that is forcing her out early. Pazi Paz made great strides in prosecuting human rights abusers, and some were thinking that the human rights climate could be changing for the better in Guatemala. Some human rights groups have criticized the court for its removal of Pazi Paz, saying the actions hinder the advance of human rights in Guatemala. Pazipaz helped put a dent in drug trafficking organizations, and she prosecuted dictator Efrain Rios Mant for the war crimes he committed in the 1980s. However, Guatemala's highest court also set aside the findings of that prosecution and has delayed the retrial of Rios Mant. Cuban journalist Normando Hernandez was the youngest of 75 dissidents arrested in March 2003. Following the three-day roundup known as the Black Spring, the Cuban government convicted numerous reporters and editors in one-day trials, and they were handed lengthy sentences for their dissident journalism. 
Latin Pulse's Rachel Bay attended a panel this week in Washington, where Hernandez recounted his ordeal. He emphasized that 11 years later, Cuban journalists still have little freedom when it comes to what they publish. The distance between Havana and Miami is just over 200 miles, so perhaps it's not surprising that Hernandez, a journalist who spent seven years in a Cuban prison because of his work, expressed frustration at Cuba's lack of a free press. Hernandez recalled his experiences. I received a sentence of 25 years in prison. I received all kinds of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. I endured both physical and psychological torture. After seven years in prison, Hernandez was exiled to Spain before eventually ending up in the United States with his family. But the pressures Cuban journalists face remain. As Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists described, they're also not unique to Cuba. Definitely the worst case in Latin America, but it's just one of the many challenges journalists facing in the region. Last year, um, there were almost uh, 15 journalists, around 15 journalists killed. Um, it was due to the coverage, especially of issues related to corruption, organized crime. Boteo mentioned examples of journalists persecuted in Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, Nicaragua, and Ecuador, to name a few places. He said that even while the number of journalists killed has decreased, the drop could be an indication of journalists holding back out of fear. Boteo and Hernandez suggested that additional training for Cuban journalists, which some American organizations already offer, could help them learn to report despite the dangers they face. For Latin Pulse, I'm Rachel Bay. We'll be hearing more from Luis Boteo on the topic of Panamanian politics later in this program. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Some of our listeners may not know that until 1903, Panama was part of Colombia. This year, through the coincidence of the political calendar, presidential election campaigns in both countries conclude in May. So this week, we dip into the political waters of both. We begin with Colombia. Adam Isaacson of the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, and the host of the WOLA podcast, joins us to discuss the re-election campaign of Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos. Well, uh, Colombia is sort of unique in that every four years they turn over the Congress and the presidency, and then they have those for the next four years, and they do it in separate votes. Uh, the Congress actually goes in March, and then the presidential election is in May. Um, right now, the field for presidential election, uh, it, it, it's, there's a big gap between President Santos and any other challenger, but the real winner in the last polling is uh, when you combine none of the above and undecided, they're way ahead of all the other candidates combined. Um, President Santos uh, is, I would say, about as popular as President Obama right now, polling in the 40s. Really? That, that high? Because the latest polls I saw had him at 27 percent. Yeah, that was back uh, around August and September when uh, um, they, they really botched the reaction to uh, a wave of campesino peasant protests out in the countryside. He's since recovered some of that. But he's uh, uh, tolerated, respected, but I would not say widely loved in Colombia. But neither is any of the, the, the other likely opponents. Who is the likely opponent? Because I've heard that the likely opponent is a former minister, um, former finance minister, Oscar Zulega. Yeah, Oscar, Oscar Ivan Zuluaga is the candidate of former President Alvaro Uribe's uh, coalition. Uribe was president from 2002 to 2010, uh, a man of the, the political right, um, who was very popular in Colombia because um, he, he cranked up a military offensive that, that 
significantly weakened the guerrilla groups in the country. Um, Uribe uh, Santos, President Santos was Uribe's defense minister for a couple of those years. And he, Santos ran in 2010 really as the continuation of Uribe. Um, once elected and once inaugurated, he really shifted gears, though. One of the first things he did was make friends with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, with whom Uribe was feuding. Um, shortly after, he pushed through Congress a law uh, for uh, land restitution and victims, which Uribe opposed. And then uh, the big blow uh, was in 2012 when it was revealed that Santos had been quietly setting up peace negotiations with the FARC, the guerrilla group that uh, Uribe had um, gone so far to, to fight. And uh, Uribe opposed that as well and really moved completely to become the head of the opposition um, to the extent that there is an opposition. Santos is a political heavyweight in Colombia. Uh, even if he's not the most charismatic guy, he is an expert at building coalitions. And he has, oh, I'd say 90% at least of the Congress more or less behind him in, in, in a front. I, I've heard this called the National Unity Coalition. That's right. That's right. And that is still, that's still there. Um, Uribe had, had, you know, on his own, you know, with, it, with Twitter as his main uh, mouthpiece, gets a lot of media, but he hasn't pulled a lot of members of Congress with him. So he started a new political movement or party, which ironically is called the Pure Democratic Center, although there's nothing centrist about them. And uh, Suluaga is the candidate that they nominated at a convention, I believe it was in November. And Uribe sort of has a problem. I mean, Uribe is leading a list of candidates for his party for the March congressional elections. Uribe is definitely going to be in the Senate next year or this year. But uh, he doesn't have a lot of political heavyweights with them. Most of those are still with Santos. And so as, as far as folks with name recognition riding his coattails, Oscar Ivan Zuluaga, the former finance minister, is one of the best known, but he's really not that well known in Colombia. Um, he, as they say in Colombia, he hasn't taken off in the polls. He, the, the more positive polls have him in the low tens, whereas, you know, Santos, the last poll I saw was in the high 20s, which is a wide gap, but still a big opportunity for any other candidate, perhaps, if somebody emerges. But they're running out of time for that. You've done a great job of, of tracing the political history for for us. I, I wonder if you could you could help me with a with a question that I, I, I really don't understand, <laughs> which is. All of these folks start as liberals at some point in in Colombia, but ne but we've been talking a lot about Uribe and Zulaga as being really conservative. Uh, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, Colombia's liberal and conservative parties go back to the 19th century, um, and they had the political system locked up between them for really most of the time until about 10 years ago. Um, the as a result of all those years of existing, just like the Peronists in Argentina or the Pri in Mexico, these longstanding parties, it's always hard to pin down what their ideology is. And inside the party, they've got factions. They've got left, right, and center factions. Uh, the same liberal party that has, you know, Alvaro Uribe and and Zuluaga and or had, they're not in the party now, and, but other people tied to the military, tied to large landowners, um, tied to the church hierarchy also has um, uh, people like Piedad Cordoba or uh, ex-president Samper, um, others who are, are, are considered uh, far left of center. Um, and then there are people like Santos who are more just from the, the, the Bogota elite and quite pragmatic. Santos certainly has governed as something akin to maybe a British Labor Party <laughs> leader. But as defense minister under Uribe, he, was, uh, he, he struck a very conservative pose. So they're, they're sort of like chameleons. The conservative party, which is smaller in Colombia, tends to be a bit more to the right. I mean, I would call them center-right because they, they, a lot of their um, key members um, are much closer to the Catholic Church hierarchy and a lot of large landowners. 
but it is really more a question of family heritage at this point than really ideology. There are members of Uribe's movement and party who, yes, uh, have been under investigation or in jail or others for uh, past sponsorship or, or, or partnerships with paramilitary groups, the right-wing forces that landowners and drug dealers paid for to, to go after guerrillas, which ended up being, the for a long time, the, the main authors of human rights abuses in Colombia. So is, is that serious, the investigation into Uribe and, and those in his party about those connections? It is serious. I mean, it was more serious, actually, when Uribe was president. During Uribe's second term, he, you know, his, his coalition controlled the Congress, but a large number of members uh, of that Congress ended up in jail um, or on trial or, or still under investigation for uh, their sponsorship of paramilitaries. And Uribe himself, there's always rumors and allegations swirling around him going back to 20 years to when he was a senator from Antioquia, the, the, the province where, where Medellin is. But nothing has ever gotten – there's no smoking gun evidence that Uribe himself sponsored paramilitaries, at least not yet. Um, but people in Uribe's coalition, a whole bunch of people who are one degree of separation away from President Uribe, including, including his cousin, who was a senator from Antioquia, have gone to jail for paramilitary sponsorship. And, and so couldn't some folks also say that, that those allegations have been trumped up for political reasons? In this case, no. In fact, the paramilitary allegations are not front and center in this election cycle. They've done at least some vetting of, of their candidates, especially their Senate candidates, to make sure that you know, you don't, they don't have people who are very likely to end up in jail. That would be a huge embarrassment. However, um, when they were doing their, their primary or their – it wasn't really a primary, their convention – um, one of the leading candidates, probably the guy who probably would have been the candidate instead of Suluaga, um, uh, Ramos, former governor of Antioquia, uh, just before that ended up uh, having a case opened against him by the prosecutor's office for paramilitary ties. Which may have influenced where they went with their candidates. It definitely did. Without Ramos, you had um, Santos's, President Santos's cousin, Francisco, who is a former vice president under Uribe, who is a, a sworn opponent politically of, of President Santos, or Suluaga. And they went with Suluaga, under, uh, who was really Uribe's preferred choice between the two. I think one reason was it would have looked pretty embarrassing in a country of 45 million people to have two cousins running against each other. These issues of paramilitary connection are not central to the election. Then is it the question of the peace negotiations between the FARC and the government, the um, the armed forces, the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia, the FARC, um, have been involved in this war for 50 years or more, depending on how you count it. Mm -hmm. So um, is that what's central to these elections? That's definitely the big issue in the elections. Right now, I mean, it, it, Colombia, most, you know, most, most voters in, in the elections in Latin America tend to be worried about security, which is still a big issue in Colombia, but it's a lot better than it was, or the economy. And the economy has been growing okay. Poverty has been, been, been reduced. So these... Uh, the, these talks that have been going on in Havana since October of 2012 are front and center. They are the main issue that, that are probably going to decide the election. To the extent that voters have a perception that those talks are going well, they're not going to want to change horses in midstream. The talks are uh, generally favored in Colombia right now. About 60% in polls are for the talks. However, a similar majority believes that they're not going to succeed, and a large majority does not want to see FARC leaders uh, avoid jail or even end up in Congress. So for Santos right now, this is tricky. He's sort of depending on the FARC going along with the talks and, and, and actually ceding a bit of ground, making uh, the, the talks appear to have momentum so that he can win. 
Um, if not, um, Suluaga, who in his very first speech on getting the nomination said, if elected, I will end these peace talks, um, is, is going to uh, gain a lot of ground if it looks like these talks are stuttering. So sort of a lot of this depends on how, whether the FARC plays ball or not. On the other hand, the FARC probably needs these talks even more than Santos does. So Santos has to be their candidate as well, and they don't want to weaken him. So one of the agreements that has come forward, although details have not been forthcoming, is the issue of political representation and space for the FARC after a peace. Is that going to happen? We know that they've had some agreement to that. Well, definitely the FARC, you know, the FARC leadership and and any former FARC members who are not in trouble for crimes against humanity are going to be able to to run. They're going to be able to run for office, maybe as their own party, um, just like a lot of guerrilla groups have done in Latin America. Um, they, they, We know that the political participation agreement does not guarantee them seats in Congress. What they are going to do, though, is create an undetermined number of special zones of the country that have seen a lot of conflict. And in those zones, they're going to have special seats in Congress for a temporary period extra seats in Congress. And so if it's a zone that's been under a history of FARC influence, one assumes that a former FARC leader might be able to get him or herself elected there. Um, but even more controversial, though, is, you know, what if some of the most murderous or thuggish of, of the FARC uh, uh, leaders uh, wants to run for office um, and, and maybe miss out on jail? The talks have not hit that topic yet, and I think they're putting it off for last, the topic of what to do with the worst human rights violators. You mentioned poverty, land reform, also part of these discussions uh, about peace. And and do we know any details about what would be forthcoming with that? Yeah, they published uh, summary documents of what they're thinking of. And there's not going to be a land reform in Colombia, which, you know, Colombia... Maybe Paraguay has worse, uh, un- worse, less equal land holding in Latin America, but uh, Colombia, the UNDP found about 1% of landowners holding 60, 62% of registered land in the country. Um, there's been a huge land concentration in Colombia, and the FARC did not manage to get an agreement that actually undoes that. There's not going to be redistribution of land. What they may have won is the legalization of many so-called campesino reserve zones, areas where Landholders can't be above a certain area, a certain uh, uh, size, sorry, and everybody has a title and there's going to be restrictions on buying and selling and, and things like that so that they can have a campesino economy. Those may come to cover, we don't know how much, probably well over 10 or 15 percent of the, the national surface of Colombia. Um, and that's as close to a land reform as they're going to get. Thank you so much, Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America. Wola, our guest today on Latin Pulse, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Voters in Panama will also be choosing a new president this spring. Luis Boteo joins us to discuss the presidential campaign. Boteo is a former television anchor for the Panamanian network known as TVN. He's now with the International Center for Journalists here in D.C. Here are excerpts from our conversation. In in Panama right now, as you know, we have had now, I would say, some tradition of uh, free elected governments. You know, uh, elections are in, over the last, right after the military dictatorship. 
uh, our first uh, elected, freely elected government uh, took office uh, right after uh, ex uh, former General Noriega uh, was ousted. And since then, we have had um, um, a series of uh, free elections where uh, your, uh, people can easily, you know, vote for the candidates of their choosing. But we have had a tradition of, of uh, political parties that have traditionally been the, the, the two traditional parties that have always kind of uh, been in power, uh, which is uh, uh, Partido Panameñista, and the uh, PRD, Partido Revolucionario Democrático. But in the last election, uh, we uh, had a, a newcomer in politics, a new political party, which is the Cambio Democrático, Democratic Change, which is actually the political party of the current president, uh, Ricardo Martinelli. And, and those three parties are the leading parties right now whose candidates um, my one of those three will be the next president. And, and so since we're giving history lessons here a bit, uh, listeners should know that the PRD, the the party of the democratic revolution, uh, is really the party of the dictators in Panama that backed Noriega, mm -hmm. backed Torrijos. Yes, it was actually created by the military dictators. Uh, um, when uh, they took power in the late '60s, uh, it was it was a it was the, it was the civilian arm of the militaries, and since then, um, of course, you know we don't have a military force anymore in Panama, so they became just a regular uh, political party. At, at one time, viewed as somewhat of a leftist party, even though supporting dictators, but. But now I would say more of a centrist party, very pro-business. And um, Juan Carlos Navarro is the candidate for the PRD, former mayor of Panama City. Uh, he is the leader in the polls. Potential for him to win? Well, there is a potential. Uh, however, you know, in Panama, you gotta you gotta take polls with some skepticism because <laughs> in other polls you might have actually. Um, uh, Mr. Arias, who is the the candidate, uh, that would for be the, Jose the, Domingo uh, Arias, exactly for the uh, for the uh, uh, Partido Cambio Democrático, the ruling party, and actually some of the surveys actually show him a little bit ahead, uh, followed very closely by Navarro and um, uh, Varela, uh, which is the uh, 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 the candidate for the uh, uh, Panameñista. That would be Juan Carlos Varela, who is the vice president, current vice president. So it's interesting. Panama has a vice president who's a different party than than President Martinelli. That was a political deal between those two parties, was it not? Yes, it was a political deal. There is a tradition of of of, of like backdoor deals and uh, where uh, they make coalition. There there are coalitions, political parties that kind of come together. Uh, like, for example, Partido Panameñista has, you know, got the support of another smaller party, Partido Popular. El Cambio Democrático has gotten the support of the Movimiento Liberal, the Molirena. Uh, and, 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 and usually what they do is they share power. You know, they would say, I am the bigger political party, but if you support me, I'll give you the vice presidency, or I'm a certain number of embassies, so you can, the other political party, and that has been um, kind of a, a way, it's not really around ideologies, really, like in many other countries where 
there is a political party that has a more pro-business or more kind of center or left. Uh, they have a rationale because of why they come together. In, in Panama, usually there, there is more like a vendetta. There is a, if you support me, then I'll give you something. And that has um, caused some problems, like the current um, vice president, um, Varela, who who was uh, actually part of the coalition with the current uh, president. He was actually fired uh, by the current president, uh, actually via Twitter, uh, after they basically disagree on issues. And that happens because, you know, the the bigger party and the ruling party in that moment um, wants to keep power and elections were coming up. So it was a move to take them away and weaken their position for these coming election, coming elections. And Martinelli cleared out all of the coalition partners of the Panamanista exactly. party exactly. in his cabinet. Exactly, so, and filled them up with all his... Uh, uh, political allies in the uh, Cambio Democratic uh, Party. So it, it's, a, it's an issue that I think that has uh, been a, a problem uh, that has weakened in certain levels um, some of the democratic institutions because there is not really a stability or continuity. So a lot of new, new faces are coming into politics. Uh, I think the Panamanian political class is learning that uh, they need to start looking for new faces. Uh, people are, like in many parts of the war, are kind of tired of the old guards, of the, the same political faces that usually uh, has them, I mean, they have uh, disappointed uh, uh, most of the electorate. Educate me, please, and educate our listeners, please, a, a bit, because none of these candidates is polling out of the 20 percentile range, none of them even in the 30 percentile range. In Panama, is it a winner-take-all first round, or does someone have to get more than 50 percent, and is there a potential for a runoff? Yeah, there is no runoff in Panama. You you either, you, whoever gets the most votes, basically. And in the last election, the this non-traditional political party who actually went into power, Martinelli's, uh, party. Martinelli's party. Actually, he won the election for with more than 60% of the electorate. It was uh, for the first time in history, really, that someone is elected with such a majority of the votes. Um, and, and this proves your theory, your, your point, that, that people were, were dissatisfied with the traditional parties in Panama. Exactly. Someone I, came in. Exactly. So, so while, um, while right now... There are many people who now got disappointed uh, by by the current uh, political party. Um, uh, they, uh, however, maintain certain level of popularity due to their kind of um, populist uh, policies, like providing uh, scholarships or or uh, pro a program called a uh, hundred bucks uh, when you reach seventy year old. Uh, a lot of people, you know, get retired there with not really uh, a, an income. So the the government has said, if you if you reach seventy year old, now you got a hundred bucks a month. So they they have actually um, used a lot of these um, uh, populist uh, public policies that has actually resonated very well, especially with the you know the elderly. Uh, there is also they also created scholarships for poor families. So I'm 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 kind of reshape a little bit some of the um, transportation system in the country. That was uh, it was a, a huge problem. They are building for the first time the metro system in the country, the first metro line. So I think they have become very popular. Uh, but however, 
uh, one of the major problems in the with the current political party and the government is is the high levels of corruption and and lack of transparency um, and and that I would say might give some opportunities some chance for the other two parties to maybe fight for this uh, for these elections uh, in a very tight race I think it's going to be a very tight race um, I, I I still believe that the current uh, uh, political party, the current government has the upper hand because, as you know, they manage a lot of the resources and, and, and some of those resources have been used for a uh, political campaign. Thank you, Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you for inviting me. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>